You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 216. Caitlin Shess and why everything is spiritual, even politics, my friends. Well, welcome to Halfway There. Welcome back. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I, of course, am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad whether you've just discovered the show and you've got a lot to catch up on, 200 some episodes, go go download those. You're going you're gonna to learn a lot. I promise I have. Um, or you've been listening for that whole time. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. If you haven't jumped on our mailing list, go out to halfwaythairpodcast.com. You can uh, make sure you get notified of every single episode straight to your email box. And there's a little Patreon link. You can support the show if you would like. It helps us keep everything running. So thank you to our Patreon supporters. I'm really excited about this conversation today. Our guest is an author and minister. Um, she's got a new book out called The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And of course, you guys know I'm a spiritual formation junkie, so we had to have this conversation. Our guest is Caitlin Chess. She is uh, she's here. Caitlin, welcome to Halfway There. Yeah, it's great to be here. I am glad to meet you, and uh, we're just uh, we're fast acquaintances, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk all about your story. Can't wait to hear that. I gave that like it's just such a broad brush to paint with uh, author and minister. So tell us about who you are and where God has you right now. Yeah, so I am a seminary student. I'm in my last year of my THM at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I work at a local church in Dallas. I minister to mostly women in our young adult ministry, so that's 20s and 30s, uh, which is my age range too, so that's great. And I'm a writer. I write uh, for different websites and blog occasionally, um, and I have my first book coming out really soon, so... Very cool. All right. So you're, you're a writer and a blogger and you're writing this book. Uh, is spiritual formation a thing that you, that you're into? Yeah, you can say tell, that. <laughs> tell me about that. Yeah. I don't think I would have recognized that phrase before I went to seminary, but definitely have, I mean, grew up in the church and have been involved in conversations about how we are formed spiritually. But I think there was something important that happened when I got to seminary um, at DTS. We are required for our first two years to go through a spiritual formation curriculum. And so we're put with a random group of people and we have our regular classes, but then every week we're meeting and going through this curriculum together. And it was a life changing experience for me to not only be in kind of a small group setting, which I had done a lot of before in the church, but to have it be more intentional and to work through different phases of this curriculum where we were talking about what things form our identity and how does our background relate to how we are spiritually formed, our family, our culture. We have a ton of international students here, so learning from, from different perspectives. And, and then having semesters where we were getting really serious about sin in our lives and how our particular stories impacted what kind of ways we were bent and things that were harder for us or easier. And, and then getting to the end and talking about how we thought our stories and the way that we had been formed through our lives had had prepared us to do certain things uh, for the sake of the kingdom. And that experience was really formative, obviously. Um, And it just, it it inspired me to take a bunch of classes here in the spiritual formation um, area. And one of the things I quickly became passionate about was that 
that that's not constrained, constrained, sorry, to just these particular areas of our lives. It's not just about um, maybe our inner spiritual kind of disposition, that it has things to do with the way that we live our lives in the world and that it even has something to do with politics. Oh yeah. I love that. Okay. So we will talk about politics and we'll get into all that, but I want to hear a little more of your story before we do. So, but you're, yeah. you're in seminary. You said your last year, this is your last year. So this is your fourth year, right? Yeah. Well, I took an extra year. So this is my okay. fifth year. Your but fifth yeah. year. You've been in seminary a long time. I can relate to that. <laughs> I crammed a three-year degree into nine years. So nice. yeah, that's, that's how I did it. I get it. So I'm not going to judge you. No judgment here. You can't see my, uh, my degrees over here, but I have a, oh, B, nice. a BA in biblical studies from Trinity. Uh, in okay. Deerfield. And then my uh, MDiv is from Denver Seminary. That's why I live in Colorado. So uh, anyway, so I can relate to the whole long seminary thing and I, I wish you well. And it's it's the, the best day of your life when you graduate. It'll be great. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, or I had to say it was like the seventh best day of my life because I'm married and I had four kids. So okay, yeah. you know, six <laughs> anyway. But uh, okay. So Let's hear some more about you and you, um, where did you grow up? You're in, you're in Dallas now, it sounds like, but where, where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I was a military kid. Um, okay. I was born in North Dakota, but didn't live there long and have lived a bunch of places since then. So most of my formative years were in Colorado and Virginia, <laughs> but, um, there isn't really anywhere that feels quite like home. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. I hear, I hear that sometimes from the military kids. It's like, well, all over, wherever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, uh, what were you in Colorado? Sorry? Where were you in Colorado? Colorado Springs. Oh yeah. Great. Okay. I was just down there last week. Yeah. It's a good place. So, yeah. uh, very cool. All right. So growing up military kid, was your family sort of, was it religious or was there, was it a Christian family? Yeah. So, I mean, was in the church from the time I was born, basically. My mom, you know, we would move a lot. And so her kind of figuring out what she could do for work or for just fulfillment everywhere we lived was kind of different. So she tended to work in the church in different capacities. So we were always very involved in a church. Um, my mom was actually a missionary kid. So both of her sisters became missionaries as well when they grew up. So we were sort of the strange family on my mom's side. Um, and then my dad really became a Christian in high school. And so what, by the time I came along, it was church a lot. And, and I'm really thankful they were both truly and still are really, truly faithful people. It wasn't one of those stories that sometimes we hear of, you know, I grew up in the church, but it was all kind of fake or it was about appearances. My parents, praise God, loved Jesus and taught me not only how, you know, to live a life that was faithful, um, but also both showed me what it looked like to have a different kind of vocation that wasn't always ministry, mm. but that was still faithful. They really thought that their work meant something for both the world and for the kingdom and did it faithfully. And I, I am thankful every single day for them. Yeah. Well, that's super powerful. That's such a great story to hear too. Right. Cause I, I think, uh, not all of us have a story where our parents were, were super faithful. So it's wonderful yeah. to, to hear that. Um, how'd that shape you? What do you, what do you think? I guess you said a few things, but what do you think you learned most from your parents? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I feel like I learned from my, I'm a lot more like my dad. And so I tend to think about, you know, how my dad works. He's a very go-getter type A, you know, and I've always kind of been like that good at school. Um, And so I learned a lot from him about how to find balance in things, how to work really hard at things you care about, but also recognize, I mean, our family was always first for him. It was never going to take second seat to his job. And I'm so thankful for that too. 
Um, but the, the older I've gotten, the more I've related to my mom, who has worked lots of different ministry jobs and hasn't kind of had the clear trajectory that people that are in seminary with me right now seem to have of, mm-hmm. I went to college, I go to seminary, I get a job in a church. And I, she has worked in all kinds of capacities in children's ministry and women's doing administrative stuff, doing more teaching. And really, I mean, the, the biggest thing I've learned from her is just that she's looking for places to serve in the church or outside of the church with my dad's role in the military, she has all these opportunities now to just be in families' lives, to be in the hospital when a baby is born or when you know a baby dies. That's happened. And she's someone that's there all the time in a capacity where it's not her job to minister to people, but she finds ways to do it. And that's so encouraging just to watch someone be a faithful Christian, but also the context that I'm in now where we, everything is very professional in your job and what kind of vocation are you preparing for to see someone who didn't have seminary training, but just studied scripture really well, and then found whatever opportunity she could find to minister to people. That's, that's encouraging for me. Yeah, absolutely. When did your faith become your own? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, you know, I used to tell a version of this story that I thought fit how these stories are supposed to be told, which is Ah. that, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, but like, I didn't really believe it. It was just kind of what was around me. And then sometime in high school, I had a pretty dramatic conversion experience at a youth conference and it was very dramatic. And, you know, I became a Christian and that was really, you know, so I, I really enjoyed, especially going to a Christian college where most of us grew up in Christian homes. I liked being like, oh, I was 16, you know, which made me sound really worldly to these you know, 18-year-olds. <laughs> yep. um, but, but the more that I've thought about it since then, and the more that I've worked in children's ministry for a few years um, now, being around kids and talking to kids about the gospel and watching kids who really did have a moment where they accepted Jesus Christ as their savior and became a believer, and there was a change in their life and they wanted to serve and Um, It's kind of changed my perspective a little bit because my mom has always told a version of the story where I was really young, like three years old and, you know, prayed the sinner's prayer in my bedroom with my parents. But the way she tells the story, the next day I was on the school bus, you know, evangelizing (laughs) to little kids, you know, it was, it was a very stark contrast for her of like, no, something really did happen. There was a change in you. You really wanted your sister who was a year old at the time to be a Christian. It was very important to you, you know? So with a little bit more perspective now, what I tend to say is I really do think I became a Christian at a, at a really young age. And I think that's possible. I've seen it in other kids myself. Um, but I do think there was a really prolonged period of time for early high school years um, where some hard things were happening in my family. And I think I was confronted with the reality of evil in a, in a more personal way than I ever had been before. And that was really concerning. And there were a lot of family members who weren't Christians. And I think I was for the first time a little old enough to, to start grappling with what really happens to them. And like, is God really good? And what, you know, so I, I just found a journal the other day from when I was like 15 years old and I was just writing over and over again in these, in these journal pages, how do I know? How can I be sure? I don't feel sure. And I feel like you're supposed to feel sure. And it's really telling how I was feeling at the time because the front of this really old journal has in Sharpie marker an Elizabeth Elliot quote that basically says, faith is not a feeling, it's a choice. Because I, I was just in this mentality of like, I don't believe it. So I guess I just have to try really hard. And I read all these apologetics books. I tried really hard to get my questions answered. And, and ironically, that kind of dramatic conversion at youth camp was, I think, really, I mean, the grace of God in my life saying, 
you don't have all the answers. There's not going to be super satisfying answers to some of your questions. You can't will this yourself and just make yourself believe something. And I really, there was just, I think, an act of God's grace in my life where I, I felt comfort even in the presence of my uncertainty about some things. And that was the first time that had ever happened. And I think that was a, a serious progression in my walk with the Lord was a moment where I didn't, you know, when I was younger, there, those questions weren't there. <laughs> those questions came up. And then there was a period of time where that was really hard and there still are now, but I haven't had, you know, that serious questioning time um, again. And I think part of what happened was having that experience of answers from really great, smart theologians, apologists, not being enough. And then having a real personal experience with God where it was just comfort, even if it wasn't answers. And that was something that, that will especially became important being in seminary now and asking lots of questions that no one seems to have an answer to right. and, and learning that finding the right answer to that is not, is not always the best path. Yeah. Well, what was that experience like? Describe it for us. Of, of being in high school and yeah, that, that camp experience. Yeah. Um, ironically, it was, it was at a different church than my own. And I remember the couple days before that experience, I was at a new youth group. I felt very alone. You know how teenagers, whether they're in church or not, are clicky and can be mean. And I was just not having a good time. That same journal, I found pages where I was writing, I hate this church. Um, I hate these kids. Like, this is just so hard. And I would go and hide in the bathroom during youth group because my parents were like, you have to go, you have to go make friends. And I hated it. And so I would just go hide. Um, and so the beginning of that camp experience was just me being like, I am out of place. I don't get these kids. Um, they were really into singing really powerful, passionate worship songs. I remember that being a big part of it. And I just didn't feel it. And I didn't know why no one else was as uncomfortable as I was or why, you know, there was all this hard stuff happening in my family. And so in my mind, singing these passionate songs about the goodness of God felt so disingenuous. And I, I just didn't understand how they could, could do that so freely. And I don't really have any other good explanation other than I was standing in this crowd of teenagers feeling very alone and had a quite miraculous, I think, experience of just suddenly feeling not only at peace and comforted, but quite sure of God's presence and his goodness in a way that hadn't come from being argued into believing that, which is what I was trying to do before. I was reading all these apologists that had all these good arguments and and I tend to like good arguments yeah. <laughs> uh, just as a person. And so having that strange experience of suddenly just, just feeling sure of that. And I haven't felt, you know, completely sure to the same degree ever since then. But it was, a, I think, a lesson for me in the future of some of these things really are just God's grace. The fact that you believe it doesn't come from you having decided and argued yourself into it. Um and I just remember coming home from the trip, running up to hug my mom and being like, God is real. Like, this is like actually real. And her thinking, you know, what happened to you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it really was a moment of this hasn't come from an argument. This hasn't come from an inspiring moment in a sermon because it wasn't. It was a song I don't even remember, but it was it really just felt like God's grace in my life saying I'm going to give you this moment of, of real certainty. Wow. I love that. Okay. So what I think that highlights, friends, is that um, absolutely we should tend our minds and we should uh, think and wrestle through the intellectual arguments so that we can, you know, understand them and share them and 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 just ha have a grasp on them. But also 
this whole podcast is about those experiences, right? Where where it's just unexplained, and you you have that chance with with God, and He's His presence is just there um, because He still does those things, and those things are really precious. Um, yeah. Boy, I love that, and I, I think you're probably right. Like I think children can certainly give their lives to Christ, uh, but it is sometimes not until later that we have a personal different experience with Him that we kind of surrender. I hear you yeah. talking about surrender there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think before some of those questions hadn't come up even. So it was pretty easy. I think as a kid to, you know, I go to Sunday school, there's simple stories into the answers. Um, but having that moment of, I'm very aware that the world is hard and things and, and evil is real. And I don't have good answers to, to why that is all the time, but but I am certain of this, that you are real and you love me and you have a plan. And I don't have to, I don't have to reconcile those a hundred percent, but I also don't have to run away from, from feeling the tension of those things. Yeah. That's coming to trust, I think. Okay. So that was in high school. And then did you notice, did you have any, you know, discipleship after that, or did anything like change for you after that? Yeah. So part of it was a little personal. Um, Me knowing what I know now, I wish it hadn't quite happened this way, but I did become very passionate about reading the whole Bible in a year. So I read the whole, the whole Bible and over the next year, and I kept a little notebook where I wrote down questions and I wrote down so many questions, (laughs) like, I mean, silly ones, but like deep ones. And I think I had this mentality of, oh, I'm coming from this place of certainty now. So I don't have to be afraid to ask questions. Um, and I do remember a youth leader warning me that if I kept doing that, that I was probably going to be testing God or testing scripture. And so I needed to kind of pump the brakes on that. And that's one of those moments that now I'm, I, I wish I could go back and, and grab that poor, you know, college student who didn't know everything either, you know, and be like, don't, don't tell the kids that like, it's, it's really okay for them to ask questions. Um, and that comes back to being really thankful for my parents because they, they were open to me asking questions and, um, was in a small group and had youth leaders and things like that. I feel like the, the most, um, real time of like discipleship that I had started in college though. I think most of my experience in high school was of small groups that were good, but again, it's hard when most of our leaders were really (laughs) young too. And, um, I don't blame them for, for their mistakes, but, um, didn't always have a positive experience. Yeah, no, I I always talk about that as, um, you know, Oftentimes it's, it's the, uh, calling of the willing, not the, not the called, yeah. right. Or the mature. And so there's this whole thing with, uh, and it's not just youth, you know, I know that in small churches you have to, everybody has to pitch in, but man, I really wish that maturity, spiritual maturity was the key qualifier, <laughs> not, yeah. uh, not anything else. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that's interesting. Okay. So college, it sounds like that was kind of where, where, where'd you go by the way? I went to Liberty University. Okay, you went to Liberty. Good. What drew you there? So I was living in Virginia. I spent my last year of high school in Virginia, so I was pretty close to the school. And I'd gone to public school my whole life, so I really thought I wanted to go to a Christian school. And honestly, it was the two qualifications were Christian school and debate team. I really wanted to do a debate team. And Liberty is one of the few Christian schools that has a policy debate team. So I, I went there, and I'm really thankful I went for both of those reasons because I I did have really positive spiritual growth experiences at Liberty. Um, and I also learned a lot of great critical thinking skills being on the debate team and being at a very politicized school, but then also getting to, um, 
think about it well with people who were open to asking questions and thinking different ways. Love that. Did you, did you study politics? Was like, were you already interested in that? What, how'd that happen? Yeah. So I started um, like the pre-law track at Liberty. Um, I switched to history about halfway through just because things were becoming so politicized at the school that classes in that department were kind of difficult to be in. Um, But even once I switched to history, I was, I was interested in going to law school initially. That's what I thought, thought I would do. Thought you were going to be a lawyer. Yes. God bless people who think they're going to be lawyers. That's good. Okay. So (laughs) what, uh, all right. So then that sounds like your faith was sort of started, started deepening there. What would you look back at your, your, your college years and say God really did in that season? Yeah. Um, so a lot of my life at the time was the debate team. We traveled constantly. Uh, we were doing research at all hours. We all lived together in the same dorms. So we were just in a very tight knit group and two really powerful things came out of that experience. One, I had some, um, coaches who were just a little bit different than Liberty, both theologically and politically, and gave me books to read and helped me ask different questions. And, um, were probably the first people to introduce me to some different ways of doing church other than very low church evangelical kind of stuff. And so that was exciting and different. And um, they first handed me James K. Smith's books that I you know, grew to really love. So I can credit them for that. Well, yeah. Are, um, there, are, the sec- are there any specific ones? Of his books? Yeah. Uh, the first one, uh, Desiring the Kingdom, was the first one that they handed me. And I actually, I found it recently because there's a class at DTS that we read it and I was grading for the class and the prof asked me to, to lead the discussion on the book. And I got to the last page, I was flipping through it. And I had written in the back, like before I even was at DTS, before I decided any of this stuff, I had written in the back, I think I want to learn how to think like this, like whatever could get me to learn how to talk and think like this, mm. I want to do. And now I look back and I go, well, that's part of what led me to seminary. But the first time I read that book, I just thought, I don't know what this guy's talking about, but I like it. And I want to learn how to think like that. <laughs> Man, I love that. I haven't read that one, but I need to, so I will. Oh, it's great. I'll put it in it's the show great. notes, friends. You can pick it up. Okay. Uh, okay, so that was the first thing. Sorry, I interrupted you. The second thing was? Yeah, the second thing was um, I was really successful when I first started on the debate team. Um, I just had all of the things that made you naturally pretty good at it. I could talk really fast. I did a lot of research. A lot of the arguments were intuitive to me. And kind of was set up to be really successful. Like I started as a freshman, but by the time I was a senior, it was like kind of expected I would be really good. And because of a whole set of circumstances, by the time I was a senior, that didn't happen. And I spent that whole year kind of failing over and over again and and really feeling the weight of other people's expectations uh, be changed. You know, all these people who said, by the time, you know, I met you when you were a freshman, I, I would have expected you know, you to be at this place and you're not. And it was, it was weekend after weekend of just failing and it was awful. And it was really awful for someone like me who it doesn't sound that awful, but it was, I care so much. I care too much. Um, I recognize about being successful and it was painful. Um, but now I look back by the end of that year, I'm really thankful that I had this thing that I was holding so tightly taken away from me because it forced me to recognize what an idol it had become in my life, how desperately I tried to hold on to it and how painful it was to lose it. And I think it also just helped me recognize that God could use those kinds of experiences. And I think made me a little more open 
to having that happen. I'm not going to lie and say that I like love failing now, but I think at the time, the fear of failure was so overwhelming. I would never have even tried to do anything that I thought I could fail at because that would just be unbearable. And it taught me that something that you thought would be the worst thing ever you could really get through. Um, again, of all of the horrible things in the world is not the worst thing ever, but it really was something that I, I had held so tightly onto and I needed it to be taken away from me for, for me to recognize the unhealthy relationship I had to it. So. Yeah. Well, God does that, doesn't he? So there's he, um, the whole dark night of the soul thing, right? Uh, John of the cross, like he, God takes the things he takes those moments and uses them to take out the things that, that we're holding on to besides him. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Okay. So that was, that sounds very formative. Why'd you decide to go to seminary instead of be a lawyer? Yeah, I t- didn't think that I would. Um, <laughs> Cause I... you know, there's a lot less money in it. I'm just, I don't know if anybody's <laughs> told you that, but I'm just mentioning it. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Um, yeah, I, so I kind of got tricked a little bit my junior year into helping out with a camp at the church that I had sort of grown up at a little bit and that my mom was working at at the time. So that's how she gets you, you know, it's like the daughter of, you know, she'll grab you. And so I got kind of, uh, forced into working this camp (laughs) for a week with a bunch of high schoolers and actually middle schoolers. It was even worse. It was really bad. (laughs) And I had a great time. I, loved all sorts of things I didn't think I would love. I grew very attached to these young girls who were just dramatic and mean to each other and yet really um, changed over the course of a week. And I, I saw the ability for people who were doing ministry to really change someone's life. And so then I spent a couple months thinking like, that would be crazy, right? For me to go to seminary. Like, I'm a woman. I don't know what I would do with it. I don't, you know, I had no idea that that was a thing anyone did who was my age or a woman, or I didn't know what kind of job I could have and slowly started warming up to the idea and then did an internship at that same church for a whole summer and had amazing pastors, especially the youth pastor I worked for, who just let me write things, let me teach, um, let me do things that kind of pushed the boundaries of what that church would normally let a woman do. And that was an experience, and he had gone to DTS. And so that was an experience of, okay, maybe there's more possibilities than I thought. And also I really love studying the Bible. Like maybe I won't have a plan for what I'm gonna do with it afterwards, but maybe just the experience will be something good. I remember telling my mom, like I could work at McDonald's, like, I don't care. I just know right now I wanna study the Bible. And so if I can financially do it, like I just wanna do it. Wow, I love that. Okay. so. I just want to point out here, friends, how important a mentor is or somebody is to open the doors for you, right? Like, it sounds like you had a pastor who just was able to say, um, you know, hey, you've, you've got some talent, you've got some gifting here, obviously, and I want to give you some, give you some opportunities to try that. Man, that is just gold. Just guys, if you, I don't know who you are, where you are in your church, what position you have, but if you have the opportunity to open the door for someone else, especially a a younger person, a college student, a seminary student. If you are a pastor and you don't have an intern at your church, what are you doing? You're not doing it right. Get an intern, let them preach. Even if it's a bad sermon, let them do whatever you like, all the things, because how else are they going to learn? You've got to, you've got to give them the opportunity supervise. Yes. Supervise, but give them the chance. Okay. That's my little hobby horse about how people need, 
we need to disciple in that way. And I, I heard you yeah. talk about that. I love, I love that opportunity and especially for women, you know, like we, we yeah. need to give, need to give those chances that those weren't always a plenty when I was in school. So maybe it's a little personal for me, but so, okay. So you decided to go to seminary. That's great. You went to Dallas. That's good. Okay. Uh, how has that shaped you? Yeah, I, um, a lot of people told me before I got to seminary, like, don't let your faith get all dry and <laughs> academic. Like it's better called cemetery, not seminary. Like it's going to be so, you know, I just, I, and I understand where they're coming from. They've seen people who really struggled or really, you know, lost a lot of faith because of their experience. Um, but I wish that I hadn't heard just such an overwhelmingly negative message when I first started, because um, I recognize it's different for everyone, but I have had just the most positive formative experience. And I think it really comes from the combination of being in classes where I have amazing professors and learn so much and feel um, feel like I really do love God more by knowing him more. Um, but I love that I've had that experience while also working part-time at a church because it's always kind of back and forth. The things that I get really nerdy about in class, I have to find a way to communicate with people at church. But I also get the benefit of like, it's not just the things that I'm learning in class, it's people's lives being changed, them being so, I mean, I think I'm excited about my ideas and, you know, the things I'm learning in class, but then I bring them to Bible study, you know, at church and people's minds are blown, like things that are just, they're just old hat in my classes. Like everyone's like, oh, we all know that. I'm like, no, like, you think people in your churches know this, they don't, you take it over to them and it will blow their minds. And so that the combination of those experiences, like I not only feel like I love God more, know more, and I'm excited about continuing to know more, but more importantly than that, I just feel like I love the church more than I ever have. And I have not had always, you know, entirely positive experiences. The church that I'm at now, I had a job I left that job. It was sort of dramatic. I felt like I'd really been burnt out and felt a lot of, um, honestly, animosity towards the church. There was a reconciliation process that was really beautiful where um, me and the person I'd been working for really talked about what had gone wrong. And now I'm back working in another capacity in the same church. And I feel like all of those experiences together, I just, I couldn't love my church more. Those people belong to me and I belong to them in a way that I've never experienced before. But I also just think this experience has made me love the, the universal church more than I ever have before, because I've seen what happens when people who have been nurtured by their church and given opportunities by their church come here and share all of their experiences together with people from very different church backgrounds. And then I've seen what happens when I have access to information and resources that people in my church don't. And the joy of bringing that to them is just more than I could have imagined before I got here. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Um yeah, I love what you said about, you know, people don't know, they don't, they don't know as much as you think, you know, so you study all this stuff in seminary and you go to class and you're like sharing it and you're like, I just learned this in class. What do you mean? And don't, yeah. they've never had to read it. Right. Or or do, do the, the research. And honestly, in the normal life, you don't really have time. So yeah, that's fair. Um, interesting. Oh, well, okay. So you wrote a book. Yes. What, why? So when did you start writing? About a year and a half ago. Okay. You've, have you always been a writer? Not really. Not really until um, my last year of college. I had an amazing professor, Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior. Who's oh, you did? Just, 
she's an amazing she's amazing and yeah she needs to be Um, on the show that's gonna happen all right but you got here first that's okay she I mean I took her class sort of by accident it wasn't part of my degree program I just thought she was really great so I would take her class and it was a really small group of people and the whole class was just pitching articles to places and peer editing them in our class and she sent my first pitch to an editor and um, I'd never really been interested in writing very much before that. And so that was a really cool thing to start off right before going to seminary because I'm learning all this stuff in class and I'm really excited that I have an outlet to to write about it because again, people don't know what you think they know. So that's been really fun too, to just be writing papers and doing research in class, but be kind of writing as well on the side is just fulfilling. Wow. Okay. So why this book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor? Yeah. So I kind of came into seminary being really excited and interested in politics, but also thinking, okay, that was my life before. Now I'm in seminary. This is like the higher spiritual calling. And so I'm leaving behind all that other stuff. And now I'm going to do like God's work, you know? And that all happened in 2016. And so I think I'm leaving that behind. I come to seminary. We're talking about the election all the time. We're talking about politics all the time, you know, in class or at the coffee shop on campus. And I suddenly realized that a lot of the people who are in school with me are very interested in knowing how to handle this in their future congregations, whatever they're doing now with their families, um, but sort of feel like it's not their job. Like, that's someone else's job. You know, there's political experts. They'll help people understand how to vote or, you know, what to think about politics. And and I just, I'll handle the spiritual stuff. And I very quickly became convinced that not only are those things more intertwined than we think, but that the political participation that people are involved in is forming them spiritually. And so if the pastor of their church thinks that it's not his or her job to care about how they're being formed in those really powerful ways, they're going to still be formed by some other forces, yes. but it's going to be without your involvement. And that's a real loss. It is a real loss. The church just abdicates all that, right? Like this, yeah. all that, all that space in the name of thinking that it's not spiritual, right? But wait, it's all spiritual. <laughs> like all of life is spiritual. Yeah. And I feel like part of what set me off on, on that path was having a class my very first semester where a big chunk of the class, it was, it was literally called spiritual life but a big chunk of the class started off with um, the professor going through kind of a very general overview of the story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation and saying, okay, at the very beginning, you have human beings in real physical bodies doing work to create flourishing in the world. And then at the very end of the story, you have human beings in physical bodies on a redeemed creation, seeking flourishing in the city that now has, you know, come with the presence of God. And so having that start starting point of coming from an evangelical background where I tended to think, our goal is to be plucked out of earth to live a spiritual disembodied life in heaven forever. And then having that vision presented to me while the election is going on, it just seems so obvious that the things we do now not only matter because earth will be redeemed and, and we have a mission to do now, but they also matter because we're not going to be disembodied spirits in the future. We're going to be seeking the flourishing of the earth in its redeemed state. And so maybe there's things that we do now that are glimpses of that you know, coming reality that not only can be an evangelistic thing, can, can show people, can witness to who God is, but can also just be good things to do. That if we were given, you know, from the very beginning, a commission to rule and reign, to seek the, the stewardship of the creation, and that hasn't changed, maybe politics is one of the avenues that we can do that. And that it does have 
not only spiritual effects on us, but ways in which we can do positive things that are good in and of themselves. Yeah. So what are some things that people can do? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the book focuses on really how churches can help form people in ways to set them up to do things in the world. So it talks a lot about corporate worship, sacraments, things like that. But the end goal being not only obviously worship of God, but also our formation into the kind of people who can vote well, um, can serve in community centers, can you know advocate for our neighbors, can um, find creative ways of seeking flourishing. So the conversation I tend to have with people in my church is, yes, the upcoming presidential election, super important. Think about how to be a faithful uh, believer when you go into the voting booth, just like you want to be a faithful believer in every other aspect of your life. But also think about local elections that really impact your community. Think about you know the community center that's down the street from me where I go to vote has a ton of other opportunities to, to, to seek flourishing in our community. Um, finding ways to advocate, even if it's not through voting, you know, if there's a particular issue locally in your community that you know really especially harms the most vulnerable. Um, I think a great example of this, there's a short film called The Ordinance, it's on YouTube, where all of these different churches in Texas from different denominations recognized how payday loan places were really harming the vulnerable people in their communities. And they couldn't get a piece of state legislation passed, so they just went by you know, tiny little areas where they could pass local ordinances. And they did that because they recognized that whether they were Catholic or Baptist or whatever, that they had an obligation to serve the most vulnerable in their community. And so that wasn't the kind of political we tend to think where it's all about, yeah. are you a Democrat or Republican? Who are you voting for for president? It was, there's this very practical, tangible thing that can help serve our communities, not only protecting the vulnerable, but also I think a mercy to the people who are benefiting from this unjust system by taking away some of the things that are that are really harming their souls as well and finding a really practical way to do that um, and, and doing it creatively, thinking in our, you know, different contexts have different issues, different opportunities, um, but just being open to recognize that there's more available to you to do than you might think. Yeah, I love that. And we had to get, I hear you saying you got to get out into your community, right? And get to know people. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, I, I love that um, spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbor, right? That's that's the love your neighbor piece. Yeah. 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 You have to know what their needs are. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day who mentioned to me that their uh, the neighborhood next to them, like a few neighborhoods down, didn't get trash service that's supposed to be provided by the city. It's like if you don't know anyone that's just you yeah. know less than a mile down the road from you, you might not know that they don't really have the resources to advocate for this thing they're supposed to receive. And you could help, you could do that. But if you don't know any of them, you wouldn't even know it was happening. Wow. And what do you do if you don't have that? <laughs> like, If you don't have what? If you have trash service. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how that seems small. It's not, it's, it's really not. a problem. No, yeah. my, my kid forgot to take out the garbage two weeks in a row. This is a bad situation <laughs> at my house right now. I can relate to it. Right. It's not good. Um, but it's, but yeah, you're right. If you don't know somebody, you know, how are, how are you going to know? So how do we get to know, um, you know, I, this is where I, I'm a big advocate for instead of the sort of attractional model where, Hey, we're open on Sunday and look, come, come and join us. I guess mm -hmm. that's fine. But, um, we need more outreach. We need to get, get into, you know, allocate more of our budgets toward that less, less maybe toward, you know, at the, the big, uh, the big show on Sunday. 
Yeah, one of the things that's been really encouraging, the, the pastor I work for at my church is the outreach pastor. And they spent, you know, people from our church spent a long time, a couple of years at least, working with a local elementary school that's pretty under-resourced. And literally just like bringing coffee to teachers, cleaning up the garden that was in the back, like doing very normal things that don't have what some people would consider like an evangelistic purpose, but it, it did. And after a while of doing that, the school was, was open for them to do kind of like a vacation Bible school after school kind of activity where they were in a public school telling people about Jesus. And a lot of people I think might see that and go, okay, yeah, that's what you should do. But they didn't start there. They started by just taking care of the material needs of these teachers who are doing a really incredible thing for our city and don't often get, you know, the support or encouragement that they need. And they, the people in our church saw that as part of their role as the church to go and support people who are serving our community by teaching our children. Yeah. Okay. So besides the needs in our community, what are some other things that churches just aren't aware of? Yeah. I mean, I think a big one is they're not aware of how strongly people are formed by their political participation. This is like the drum I will beat all the time, but I think we tend to think, okay, yes, you might, you know, watch a certain cable news channel every day, or you might, you know, have these kinds of conversations or post these kinds of things on Facebook. But when you come into church, we'll just tell you the right answers. We'll read some Bible verses to you and and that'll fix it. Yes. (laughs) Instead of recognizing that they're not gaining just information from a political ad or a commentator or a Facebook post. They are learning something much deeper and affective of who am I supposed to protect? Who am I supposed to be safe from? Who are my people and who are other people? Um, What ultimately should the world look like? How should I, you know, what kind of good should I be seeking? But to recognize that having conversations about political issues is never just a conversation about political issues. There's a reason it's so divisive and difficult. It's because people's identities, their ultimate hope and goal is all bound up in those things. And so if you're not talking about it, you're not being apolitical. You're actually just letting, you know, reinforcing whatever maybe bad theology those people might have. And that theology is coming to them from a, like I said, a spiritual theological source that we don't treat as spiritual or theological, which is, you know, media, political commentators, those kinds of things. Right. Again, it's all spiritual, right? So you have to take that. I I agree. Wow. I just think about that. For instance, I'll just use an example. Um, You know, Rush Limbaugh's on the air. So three hours a day to five days a week. He's not always there now because he's got lung cancer. Hope he gets better. But um, like that's 15 hours a week, right? And you're spending an hour, maybe two hours a week with people. And so there's some people... Uh, not disparaging, you know, if you listen to to Rush, he's one of my big influences uh, for radio, right? But he, but that's your, he's speaking into people's lives way more, right? Way yeah. more than perhaps a pastor. Um, and so if our only way of thinking about getting into people's lives is to have them come and show up on Sunday morning, you're missing so much, right? I, yeah. You know, I, I recently um, wrote a review of a podcast of a very popular preacher in, uh, in, in iTunes. I'm not going to say, well, okay. Well, Stephen Furtick elevation. And I, (laughs) I said, I said, look, dude, this, this is, uh, it's great that you're sharing your sermons, but Hey, do you could do more with this medium, right? The medium can do a lot more to disciple people and it's fine. Your sermons are fine. You're gifted, whatever, but that's not, you know, there's more you could do. And like, I'd love to see, love to see you do that for that reason. Right. Sky Jitani wrote a really great piece about that last year called the case against sermon centric Sundays. Like, well, how do we, 
how do we do that? Anyway, okay, this is something I'm passionate about. You can probably tell. Um, yeah. That's that's really important. Okay, wow. So people can find it. I know your your website is is what's your website? Where's your ahead of Caitlinchess.com. There you go. And so guys, you can find it there and the book is out shortly. It'll be out by the time we get this. You can get it anywhere that you get great books. Uh, the liturgy of politics, spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbor. Caitlin, is there anything you want to leave us with? I think the thing that I just keep telling people is we're entering an election season is um, start by taking care of, of your heart and your soul. And so before you consume media, before you have really hard conversations with people, don't forget that the church has historically had really powerful tools for shaping our hearts and our souls and um, things like spiritual disciplines, reading scripture, um, worshiping corporately. Don't forget that those things can kind of prepare you to do the hard work of engaging with political questions, but it doesn't have to be an, an either or kind of thing. Oh yeah, that's very good. Tend your soul first. I love it, Caitlin. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.